You may be seated. Well, it's that time of year again, and we are launching into our series of Christmas messages. Stephen Covey, the great management guru, says that one of the habits of highly effective people is that they begin with the end in mind. In other words, they not only have an understanding of where they are, they have a a clear imagination for where they are going, for what their direction is. Otherwise, we get too distracted if we don't know exactly where we're trying to head. Well, that's not only good kind of personal advice for living your life, it's also good advice for how we understand the Bible. So often we read the Bible in little isolated little chunks that we don't actually, with each of those different segments, start to put the pieces together for how we understand how it fits in God's story as a whole. And so we are particularly guilty of this at Christmas time. We're at this season with the nostalgia of this time of year. We isolate these stories of the coming of Jesus. But these stories of the advent of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, are actually taking us somewhere. There is an end in mind. It takes us to the cross. It takes us to the empty tomb. And so we don't just celebrate in isolation the incarnation. We are also talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection. And that we can't actually divorce these things from one another. They have to be held together. So we are calling these series of Christmas messages called Star-Crossed, where we're going to be looking at the cradle through the lens of the cross. And the way that we're going to do this is that we're going to be looking at the three gifts that the magi or the wise men bring to the birth of Jesus, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. And while we're familiar with the labels of those, we aren't necessarily familiar with how those are explosive with meaning in helping us to understand who Jesus is and what he has come to do. They not only represent three signposts of what Jesus intends, they also represent three confrontations at the end of Jesus's life. Gold is a confrontation with Jesus being the king of kings as he is confronting with uh, the Caesar's representative, Pontius Pilate. We also have the frankincense, which is the symbolism of the priesthood, and that's a confrontation that Jesus is going to have with the high priest of that day, Caiaphas. And then myrrh is going to recognize how Jesus is going to have that confrontation with death itself. One of our oldest theologians by the name of Origen put it this way, gold is to a king, myrrh is to one who was mortal, and incense as to a god. These three gifts help us to unlock how we understand Jesus and what he has come to do. So today we're going to be talking about gold, and as we get into this, I need to reveal to you that I was not voted most likely in high school to become a pastor. I was voted most likely to become a game show host. And so pastoral ministry is really a compromise in the 80s. I think that was kind of the apex of the game show era. And my personal favorite was not like the trivia shows like Jeopardy. My sister was at the head of her class and she was really good. Solitary sport, you with a buzzer and you having to answer the question correctly. I was more of a family feud kind of guy, especially during the Richard Dawson era which is the pinnacle of family feud, because I really enjoyed trying to think about what other people were thinking about. And so one time in family feud, they asked this question. When someone mentions the king, 
To whom might he or she be referring? Let's pretend you're on Family Feud right now. Turn to somebody next to you and answer that. Ready, set, go. All right, well, let's see how they answer this on the Family Feud. Survey says... You've got a couple of people who are hungry. They mentioned the Burger King. You got a couple of people who are passionate about civil rights with Martin Luther King. You've got seven people who said God or Jesus and 81% said Elvis Presley. Oh, how many of you said Elvis Presley even in church? You should know the answer is always Jesus when it's a church. <laughs> Can't help ourselves, can we? Well, all of this is to say is that when someone talks about a king, we cannot help but import what our understanding of a king is when we do so. And so when we show an image like this, immediately certain things come to mind from your background. Maybe it's legends, maybe it's stories, maybe it's media or television shows that you have a certain understanding of what a king is. I mean, America was founded on the principles of kind of the division of the different branches of the government. And so we're actually kind of as Americans inherently suspicious of kings. We don't think anybody should have that much power. And we're worried about the corruption of leadership. There's also uh, a lot of people in Europe that still have kings, but many of them, their kind of kingdoms are more ceremonial in power now. It's more like symbolic power than it is actual leadership power. There are others who are still under the oppression of kings. And so depending on what our story is, depending on what our circumstances or what we watch or listen to, when we hear the Bible describe Jesus as a king, we bring a certain set of assumptions to that label. And so what I'd like for us to discover today is when the Bible talks about Jesus as king, what does it mean by that? And so if you will, turn with me, reach for a Bible. Turn with me to John chapter 18. We're going to start reading in the 33rd verse. And while you're turning there, this is, like I said, gold is the signpost of Jesus being the king of kings, but it's also a confrontation that Jesus is about to have a confrontation with Pontius Pilate, who is Caesar, the king's representative in that portion of the world. And you need to know that Pontius Pilate was the quintessential politician. I mean, the truth for him was negotiable. Facts were flexible. He would do whatever it takes to stay in control. Justice is just a matter of who's in charge. Not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? But here we're about to see the king's representative and the king of kings in a battle. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. 
Ah, you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. And with this, he went out to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time of the Passover? Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. May God bless not only the hearing and the receiving, but also the putting into practice of his holy world. I want you to imagine with me for a moment the dark inside of a jail cell. There's somebody in there. He's a life taker. He's a criminal. He's completely guilty. There's no appeal process. There's nothing else to be done but to wait for the execution that is to come. And so in the solitude of that jail cell, you can imagine the lack of hope, the weight of the despair. The soldiers come in and he figures that he's on his way to be killed. But instead of treating him in the same rough manner that they had before, they unlock his chains, they open the door, they invite him to run outside. He almost thinks it's a joke or a trick but he knows he's not going to get another chance. And so he runs. He runs for a couple of blocks, makes a couple of turns, and then a little winded, like, leans over on his legs and breathes deeply and hides in the shadows. And he thinks to himself, what just happened? Why me? You can imagine that this would have been like the experience of Barabbas in the Bible, that there's that custom at the Passover for there to be someone who is to let go. And Pilate, no less than four times, tries to allow Jesus to be the one who is set free. But it happens to be Barabbas who's the one who is let go. And he just can't help but think to himself, why was he set free. Well, the way that the Bible describes it, going all the way back to the time of Moses and the Passover celebration, it's known as substitutionary sacrifice. The way that Tim Keller describes it is this way, all real life-changing love is costly substitutionary sacrifice. It's where one person takes the place of another. It's a costly trade. It's something we're actually quite familiar with. It's something that moves us deeply even today. When you think of even literature today, when you think of The Hunger Games, this famous young adult, not only a set of movies, but also series of books, Katniss Everdeen volunteers to take the place of her sister in the barbaric games. Harry Potter has a mother who takes his place in order for him to be saved. And there's something that's a part of us that can't help but be moved when someone is willing to lay down their life for another. And there's a part of us that can at least relate to the fact of a sister being willing to trade her place for another or a parent being willing to lay down their life for a child. But Jesus is qualitatively different from 
any of these other people. It's categorically of a different kind because Jesus is a king and he's trading his life for a criminal. He's the Lord and yet he's substituting his life for a servant. I don't know about you, but I almost can't wrap my imagination around that kind of trade. It's why Jesus, in this confrontation with Pilate, says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not from this place. Jesus began his ministry by saying, repent, which means to turn around. Turn around because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then throughout the course of his life, we get to see what that's like, that the blind begin to see, that the lame begin to walk, that the deaf begin to hear again, that people are healed, people are brought back from the dead, that this kingdom was unlike any other kingdom in all of history, that there was healing, that there was renewal, there was restoration of all things. It's a kingdom that originates from another place. And so in this dialogue between Pilate and Jesus, Pilate asked the question that everybody's been wondering his whole life long. Are you the king of the Jews? I love how John Ortberg describes the answer. It is an intensely dramatic moment. Jesus may still go free if he just says no. If we will assure Pilate that he is no threat to Caesar. This was the question that hung over Jesus his entire ministry. Ironically, any day before this one, all Jesus had to do one time was say, yes, I'm the Messiah. All of Israel, or a good chunk of it, would have risen up in arms and died for Jesus. As recently as Palm Sunday, the chance lay open before him. He would never claim the title. Now, when there are no crowds around to rally to him, when he's in the hands of Pilate, when there's no chance of an army rising to defend him, when there's no chance of his being misinterpreted as a military figure, now when it's too late for him to be saved, Jesus says, yes, yes, that's me. It is as you say. I'm the one they've been waiting for. I am their king. Jesus knows what is going to happen to him. And Pilate pronounces the sentence. It is in this moment that Jesus reveals who he really is. One of the saddest chapters in Israel's history, for me to give you a little bit of background on this, one of the saddest chapters is that moment in Israel's history when they clamor to have a king of their own. Up to that point, the rabbis had taught the people and the people had prayed and chanted together. They would say, we have no king but God. All the other kingdoms of the world have kings, and we have no king but God. Go ahead and say that. We have no king but God. And so you can imagine how much it broke God's heart that in that time, that when they absolutely demanded in order to have a king, that they wanted one. They wanted to be like all the other nations of the world. And so they got a king, and sometimes they had a decent one, even though they were flawed. Most of the times they had bad ones. It didn't end well. And here you have Israel now under a foreign occupation. And here Pilate goes before them in the very next chapter of what we're reading in John chapter 19. And he says, shall I crucify your king? 
And the people reply, we have no king but Caesar. What began in the beginning of the story is, in those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, that this is what was about to happen under the time of Caesar, has now become a pledge of allegiance to Caesar. That the people who had chanted for centuries and for their whole life long, we have no king but God, we have no king but God, now the crowds chant, we have no king but Caesar. They have capitulated to a new kind of king. In June of this year, Kelly and I were traveling in Germany to do research for the last series that we have just finished up on the Reformation and the life of Martin Luther. And we were in Berlin for a day and went to this great antiquity museum that's known as the Pergamum Museum. And so I'm a typical tourist. I've got the headphones on with the audio guide and we're looking at all of these different artifacts that are all over the place. And we come across this one inscription of a stone that actually talks about with the Greek letters there, it talks about, and this is what it says in the full, in the full portion of it. It says that Caesar is king and God's son. That this is how Caesar viewed himself, and it's how he wanted others to view him as well. That this was a part, and actually chiseled in stone, a part of Caesar's ego and propaganda. But as I'm listening to the audiobook, and I take a closer look, all of a sudden the tourist guide says, point out and look at this more closely that you'll notice that there, amongst the very words where T. Caesar declared himself to be king and God's son, that an early Christian in a holy form of graffiti had taken a chisel out and chiseled a cross right over the words where it said that Caesar is king and God's son. Because the early Christians believe there is only one king. There's only one true son. And his name is Jesus. I wonder if you would have that kind of courage when it comes to your faith. I wonder if I would as well. I wonder if we're even really honest about our own allegiances. That I have no king but success. Or I have no king but ambition. Or I have no king but the approval of others. I have no king but comfort. I have no king but status. I wonder where my real allegiance lies in yours. And I wonder if the cross would really be chiseled on my heart in the same way. This is an artist by the name of Gibb Singleton. Gibb always knew that he was going to be an artist. 
And early on in his career, he got to do amazing restoration work. Then eventually he became fascinated with Western art, moved to Santa Fe, was inspired by Remington. Towards the end of his life, he learned suddenly that his daughter had died. And very near to that moment, he also learned that he did not have long to live. And all of a sudden, everything came into supreme clarity for him. And he was able to see what he really was called to do with his hands. Always a gifted artist, had referred to his work as emotional realism. He turned his great giftedness towards devotional Christian art. And one of his last works is one of the Stations of the Cross. And it's this work, and it's entitled, Behold Your King. You can see the sign above Jesus' head. And I wonder if you'd be willing to just take a few moments with me in personal quiet meditation as we look at this piece of art about what a real king looks like. Here he is. Here's your king. It's not something we would have imagined. Doesn't fit our understanding of the legends or of how politics really works. Behold your king. You know, I said earlier, it's pretty easy for us to imagine a sister being willing to lay down her life for another sibling. It's easy to imagine a parent being willing to lay down their life for a child. But the most remarkable thing about today's story that I don't want you to miss at all is a little detail that everybody who would have heard this story the first time would have known exactly what it said but we just miss it. At Passover, a substitution happens. A king takes the place of a criminal. And the criminal's name is Barabbas. And Barabbas means son of the father. Jesus died so that we might become children of God. It's one thing to die for a family member you already love. It's another thing to have the kind of love that makes someone 
an heir, a child, a son, a daughter of the one true God. And so Jesus is a king, but he's no ordinary king. His kingdom is not from this world, but I'm here to declare to you that his kingdom is for this world. And he's come to make a costly trade, an incredible substitutionary sacrifice. The Lord of all is willing to become this kind of king so that you might become his child. Let's pray together. Our loving God and Father, we confess that our true allegiances are often elsewhere. That like the Israelites of long ago, like the crowds clamoring before Jesus, we are willing to capitulate to other authorities and powers. And so we confess to you right now, God, in this moment, those real allegiances and kingships that we have. Lord, we also confess that we don't have an accurate picture or imagination of what a king really is. We think of the power and the glory and the majesty, but we forget that your version of kingdom is upside down and that you came not to be served, but to serve, to offer your life as a ransom. And in taking our place, God, you now restore us to your place, that we become daughters, sons of you. Chisel on our hearts, God, the cross so that we might see the cradle for what it really is, the beginning of being adopted by you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.